Let's open in prayer. Lord, thank you for this morning that we could come together, that we could gather as the church and, and learn of your word, learn of what it is that you would have us do with what we believe. Thank you that we could look back on church history and learn from the mistakes of the past and the good things and the good theology of the past as well. We know that we're here today thinking and believing theological concepts that have been thought over and worked on for many, many centuries. And we're thankful, Lord, that men have come before us to interpret the Bible. We can learn from that as well. Give us wisdom. Give us a desire for the truth. Help us to not base everything on tradition, but also look back to tradition and understand. So, Lord, bless our time this morning as we study. In the name of Christ, amen. So we're now still in the 1800s. We last looked at the Second Great Awakening. The Second Great Awakening. And who was the, uh, the really Pelagian preacher who brought about altar calls, the anxious bench, what would turn into the sinner's prayer, a, a lot of pressure on people and a tent revival. Remember his name? Charles Finney. Charles Finney. And he was all about the numbers and success and convincing and pressuring much of what we see today in evangelical churches. That comes from Charles Finney. He was a Pelagian. He didn't really hide that. He published a systematic theology that showed all of his denials of the atonement of Christ. He denied that man was totally depraved. He denied that the Holy Spirit was needed to make a person into a Christian. If you could just convince yourself that that's what you wanted to do, he said, just like a lawyer decides to be a lawyer at a young age and gets the training, that's all that needs to happen. So that was the time of the revivals. It was, it was following in the sense of the first Great Awakening with Edwards and Whitfield, where people were being revived, being revived in their churches. In other words, saved because they grew up as unbelievers in the church. And then they were suddenly hearing these wonderful sermons on the scripture and being saved in the first Great Awakening. Well, the second Great Awakening starts out like that, but it quickly turns into what we see today, which is all about the numbers. And Finney would justify what he was doing by saying, look at all the people coming. We must be doing the work of God. This must be the work of God. Today you will hear churches say, well, we baptized 2,000 people last year. Well, maybe that's good. Maybe that's not. That doesn't really tell us much that you dunk some people in the water. And we're going to see from this movement, which, which had good in it as well. We talked about the good preachers of the Second Great Awakening as well as the bad. There's going to be some groups, groups that now split off from the mainstream of Protestant Christianity. These are called the Restorationists. And then there's also many cults that start during the Second Great Awakening and what's later called the Third Great Awakening. We won't cover that under that name, but in the later 1800s going into the early 1900s, there's a Third Great Awakening and people would put the, the Bible conferences that were happening at the Niagara Falls area Schofield in America, Spurgeon in England. Many of these were happening during a time what's called the Third Great Awakening. And many cults were forming as well. And so let's look at these. I've combined them together not to say that the Restorationists or, or the Church of Christ today or any of those denominations or cults, but they do intertwine in their history. So I think it's important to, to cover it together. This painting here is of the Cane Ridge Revival that happened in Kentucky. And we'll talk about the meaning of the Cane Ridge Revival. But again, you can see large crowds outdoors, a podium and a, and a little shelter built for the preachers. 
And then all the people just gathering around the tents in the background. And this was a big thing. This was not something on the fringe. On the frontier areas especially, this was something you went out for. Either for entertainment purposes or to have some kind of church service. But people were flocking to hear preachers. And this happened in the 1800s. That's why Spurgeon, one of the reasons he got so many big crowds in London in the 1800s. You didn't have TV. You didn't have internet. You didn't have your cell phone to stare at. You wanted to go see a spectacle. You went to hear the preacher. And some people got saved as a result. And other strange happenings went on in America during this time. So let's start off with the Mormons because they come earliest in the history that we're looking at. In the 1800s, 1823, Joseph Smith said that an angel named Moroni, very interesting name, Moroni, appeared to him and told him a book of golden plates was hidden with the Urim and the Thummim. So these were the white and black stones that the high priest would take in the Old Testament out of his garment. And they had probably Hebrew letters or markings on them. And he would probably not cast them out, but just, just pull them out. And whatever they, they showed told people the will of God. God used that and told the priest to use that to determine the will of God. We're not to do that. The last time it's mentioned in the Bible that anybody drew lots was when they chose Matthias to replace Judas. No one else after that has been told to do that because we have the Holy Spirit and the Bible. Well, anyway, Joseph Smith is supposed to go dig up these golden plates. I'm not sure why it took him four years to do it, but four years later, supposedly, he dug up a book of thin golden plates. So it would be a book like so with, with golden plates stacked and then a ring, kind of a binder format. And he dug those up in Palmyra, New York. He said he used then a seer stone to translate them because they were a mixture of Hebrew and ancient Egyptian and all these different things. And uh, he looked in his hat. He threw the stone in the hat and he put it over his face. And he interpreted what the book over there that was covered up on the table was saying. And then his wife wrote it out and it became the Book of Mormon. And so he published that in 1830. So there's Joseph Smith as a young man and then a painting of him. Uh, He goes to this certain hill, the angel said, and moves the stone. And there's the Book of Mormon. And it's been there all these years because Jesus actually visited the Americas, the angels in the book says. So there he is looking into his hat there. The Book of Golden Plates is underneath the tablecloth. It's disappeared. A few years later, he supposedly took it and put it in a cave with some other men. They still have the seer stone there. There's the stone that he would throw into the hat. And I'm not sure how that told him what the book said, but that is the stone still today. A lot of Mormons won't go into this part of their history. Some deny it and some laugh at it. They're, they're much more mainstream as well as Jehovah's Witnesses. They're, they're trying to look and appear more mainstream. But this is actual documented beliefs of Joseph Smith and what he told people happened. The Mormons then relocated to Ohio in about six years. But everywhere they went, they were, they were persecuted for their heretical beliefs. And so then they went to Independence, Missouri. And then eventually Joseph Smith went to, I think you say Nauvoo, Illinois. He was killed there by a mob who hated his doctrine of polygamy. So he had many wives and people were often persecuting him for that. And they killed him eventually or hung him, I think, because of that. It was against the law. Polygamy was against the law. And even up until recent times was against the law. To become a state, Utah had to outlaw polygamy. Now they're changing the laws or have recently 
so where you can have many wives in Utah again. The Mormons then migrated to Utah under the leadership of Brigham Young. So they decided we're going to go out west where there's not as many people, start a whole new area, a whole new city, Salt Lake City. And they had some issues along the way. Some Mormons even killed settlers who were headed on the Oregon Trail. Salt Lake City becomes the center of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That's their official name, even though it's called the Book of Mormon. Their official name, Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. A second group repudiated polygamy during those early times. And that was led by Joseph Smith Jr. Built a strong organization back in Independence, Missouri. So there's a group of Mormons there called the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And there's many offshoots to the Mormons. They're not all just one group, but they all have similar beliefs dating back to Joseph Smith. So they accept the Book of Mormon, Scripture. They accept the Pearl of Great Price and another book called the Doctrines and Covenants, along with the King James Version of the Bible. So they have four books of Scripture, four huge books, and they take a very low view of Christ. They think Christ was not God, just a man who earned his divinity. They're very polytheistic, more than the Hindus. They have more gods in Mormonism than Hindus because anybody can become a god. And if we have billions of people today, for example, and they could potentially all become a god of their own planets, now you're looking at a very polytheistic, very many gods in their They did practice polygamy until the U.S. government said that's against the law and you can't become a state until you ban it. They ban it, but nowadays many of them, especially the, the more independent ones that live out in the, in the boonies, they have many, they call them wives, but legally on paper with the government, they're not registered as wives. They believe in baptism for the dead. You can be baptized for your dead ancestors that came before you. So it's really a, the Gnostic. If you remember the Gnostic heresy in the early church, this is the Gnostic heresy brought back into a more modern time. And the issue in the 1800s, remember, is a revival and a, a reinvigoration of Christianity, a restating of Christianity. And Joseph Smith thought that Christianity had strayed away. We're going to see this all throughout our time this morning. Christianity had strayed away, not during the Catholic Church time, but right after the early church. It went off into the woods and became heretical. And so his role was to bring it back. We're going to bring Christianity back to what it's supposed to be. And by the way, I've got this book that was given to me by an angel that tells us how to do that. So the next group, again, I'm not saying this group and its descendants are a cult. All happening, though, in the same time frame and somewhat related to the men we'll see coming up later. A man named Barton Stone really started the restoration movement, what will become called the Stone-Campbell movement. Barton Stone began a new presbytery from the Presbyterian Church. He broke away from that in 1881 in Kentucky. And he got together with some other Presbyterian churches that agreed with him. They thought the church needed to be reformed to early Christian standards, the apostles, the Bible only. And so he began to have these revivals. The, the area that they met was called Cane Ridge, Kentucky. There was a little meeting house. I'll show you a, a photo in a minute. It's still there today. But they attracted crowds outside because this is the time of the revivals. He wrote a few years after 1801 some early writings along with five other men. And his goal was to unify all the churches, or at least as many as could agree on these basics, 
The unity should be for all who follow Jesus, they said. They suggested the value of congregational self-governance. For a Presbyterian, this is a big deal because you're basically saying, we don't want to be Presbyterian anymore. We want to be congregational. And so they were starting to move away from the Presbyterian model. They lifted the Bible as a source for understanding the will of God. And they denounced the divisive use of the Westminster Confession of Faith and adopted the name Christian to identify their group. So on the surface, this looks very good. This looks, you know, other than maybe throwing out the confession, the Westminster Confession. I mean, who, who disagrees that all true believers are unified in Jesus? Who disagrees that it's better for each church? Well, some would disagree, but we would agree here that it's better for each church to govern itself and not have structure built over many churches. And the Bible is the source for understanding the will of God. But you should start thinking, okay, why did they want to throw out the Westminster Confession? What was the issue there? Was it just infant baptism? Which we would disagree with here, but that wasn't the only issue they had with the Westminster Confession, as we'll see. Here's the Cane Ridge meeting place. I showed you a, an outside painting of it on the first slide this morning. This was what the inside looks like today. And they still have meetings there. Um, I'm not sure which. It might be the Church of Christ or Disciples of Christ that, that owns it today. They have some stained glass windows they put in there. So here's Barton Stone over the pulpit. I think he's the man on the left in the, in the green because he's a bit older there. And then a Baptist preacher named Raccoon John Smith. I mean, that's the kind of name you had on the frontier, right? You're a raccoon or slim or whatever. This, his nickname was Raccoon. He was a preacher of a, of a Baptist church that first united with Barton's Presbyterian church. And then Barton becomes more Baptist in his beliefs as far as baptism by immersion. So this happened on New Year's Day, 1832. So we've got about 30 years of Barton Stone developing his thoughts with other men and his like-minded churches. They will eventually join with these Baptists and start a new association. That should be Kentucky, Lexington, Kentucky, by the way. Another man that's going to join with this movement later is Thomas Campbell. He publishes a book in 1809, and he wants to reform his Presbyterian church into a more congregational church. After he exchanged his view of baptism to baptism by immersion, his son Alexander joins him. Comes, he was overseas. He comes back home and joins him. So these are the Campbells, and they decide to move away from Presbyterianism and start a new Baptist association. The Campbells thought that Christian unity could be achieved by finding a set of essentials that all reasonable people could agree on. Which again, the surface of it, it sounds nice. Let's agree on the basics of the faith. Let's, let's agree on the essentials. The Stone-Campbell movements merged together in 1832. So Barton Stone and his followers and the Campbell father-son combo merged together in 1832. And for a long time, they're just known as the Campbellites. Later, they might be called the Restoration Restorationists. And then I'll tell you where they split out later into different denominations today. The, the issue that is coming about, though, is you're seeing this idea of let's get back to the early church, which essentially equates to let's do away with church history, or at least the study of church history. And that's a problem. The reason that's a problem is many things have come up in church history in the 1800 years at this point that have challenged the church to think rightly about theology. We saw that with the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedonian Creed and the Reformation and the confessions of the faith that came out of the Reformation that tried to have the doctrine of Scripture as close to the Bible as they could do. And they did a great job, I think, in most cases with those Reformed confessions. 
Well, these groups were saying, you know, that had really caused problems in the church. And people couldn't be unified if we're going to divide over doctrine. That's what the issue comes down to. If we get too specific with our doctrine, that divides Christianity. Let's go back to the essentials. Let's go back to the apostles. Sort of jettison what we've learned in church history because that took us on the wrong track. And let's go back to see what the apostles said in Scripture and pretty much forget about what's happened in church history since then. A little discernment certainly is needed with, with many things like this, right? And you can imagine, though, as people are hearing these other revivals and preachers on the frontier, this sounds like a new movement. I mean, who doesn't want to go back to what the apostles taught, right? You always have to ask people what they mean if you're able to do that in a discussion like this. What do you mean go back to the apostles? Well, let's go back to the Bible. Well, we that's great. We agree with that. Amen. What about the Trinity? Oh, well, you know, the Trinity is going to become an issue with some of these men. Well, what about salvation? How is a person saved? What about evangelism? Well, when you start getting into details, that's, that's why there's different denominations and different churches and different doctrinal statements today. Because doctrine does divide. And often it divides truth from error. And uh, these weren't so much secondary issues that they were trying to unite on. These were primary issues. How the church is to be organized. How the gospel is to be preached. What is the gospel? What, what is the trinity? So here's the uh, four men, really, who... There was another man, in addition to the Campbells and Barton Stone, on your left there... Walter Scott was an evangelist during the revival. And uh, one of these other men heard him preach and asked him to join the movement. So this becomes the uh, restoration movement. So you'll see in this uh, at the bottom, pioneers in the great religious reformation. You already see there the idea that they are trying to reform the church. They're trying to bring the church back to what the apostles had it as. Much like the reformers, Calvin, Luther, and those guys, Zwingli, were, were trying to reform the Catholic Church, these men and this movement sees itself as reforming the church that wasn't really reformed at the Reformation. So here's their beliefs in general. They believe that Christianity had lost its way and had fallen into apostasy. So that's, that's a big issue because it's not just that it's drifted off a little bit and gotten focused on the wrong things. It's that these other ways had gone off into apostasy. They taught that the only basis for the church's existence was Jesus Christ. So they're not going to call themselves any denominational name. We're just going to call ourselves Christ's disciples. They believe that the creeds of church history were full of error and the church needed to be restored to its true primitive teaching. Now even the original men would disagree on what level of error and how serious these issues were. And even today the denominations that come out of this which is kind of interesting. They're, they didn't believe in denominations, but eventually it ends up being formed. Three different denominations come out of this movement. The Campbells and Barton Stone were all agreed that belief in the creed should not be required. And you'll often see this if you go into like a Church of Christ or Disciples of Christ. I remember the first time I went into a Disciples of Christ church, they had a banner at the front on the stage. It said, no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible. Well, that sounds good, right? But what they're actually saying with that is nothing else, no doctrinal statements. We are sticking to Scripture. Sounds good, but what's the, what's the issue with just saying, I believe what the Bible says? What's the issue with that? What's your interpretation of the Bible? So the Roman Catholics agree 
with this. They pretty much, if we gave them this, they would add some books to it. But they wouldn't have an issue with necessarily what's there, right? It's their interpretation of what's there. A lot of folks, in fact, who do we just look at that held the King James Version as Scripture along with three other books? The Mormons. You can open a verse of the Bible and the Mormons accept, or at least on, on the surface level. So we have to be really careful that when we say no creed but Christ, no creed, that's a doctrinal statement. A creed is a doctrinal statement. It's good to have a doctrinal statement. It's good to let people know what we believe. It's good to have a basic statement of faith to, to know who's coming into the church. They thought it was best to just preach and teach about God and Christ without reference to words like Trinity. So that's concerning. But they knew that at this time, especially in the early 1800s, there are many people denying the Trinity. It's called the Unitarian Movement. A lot of the first few presidents of the United States, not George Washington, but others after him, were Unitarians. They denied that there was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They, they thought that there's only one God and no three persons that are one God. So they denied the Trinity, the, these early Unitarians. And the Restorationists saw this a lot of tension. Even amongst the Presbyterian churches, there was argument over the Trinity. And so they said, let's just not talk about that. Let's not use that. The Campbells did believe that Jesus was God. They weren't heretical. They understood the doctrine of God was roughly Trinitarian in Scripture. They just didn't want to use the language because it divided Christians. Barton Stone did flatly reject in his writings, though, the, the doctrine of the Trinity, and he denied that Jesus was God. So you have three or four men, however you want to group those together, and one of them, a prominent one, denied the doctrine of the Trinity. So the Restoration Movement later splits up. So it all comes together, and it eventually a lot of them will reject the, the non-Trinitarian views of Barton Stone. And this ends up coming out as in three denominations today. The Churches of Christ, which thought that instruments were not to be in worship. They were not, not only not required, but sinful to be in worship. Independent Christian churches and the Disciples of Christ. So these are the three. There are also other smaller ones today. I didn't list, but these are the three main ones that we see today. Many of them early on taught baptismal regeneration, the act that baptism saves. Many of the restoration churches, some still today, still teach that view. This is exactly what the, one of the Campbells said. Remission of sins cannot be enjoyed by any person before immersion. In Christian baptism, immersion, that's the name of the book, he also said, immersion is the converting act. Immersion and regeneration are two Bible names for the same act. So we teach and believe that Christians definitely should be baptized. They should be baptized as soon as possible, as soon as their profession of faith is proclaimed and examined. But it's not the same thing as being saved. It is not the same thing as regeneration. Regeneration is the work that the Holy Spirit does in the heart to change a person. Some churches today within these denominations have moved away from these teachings explicitly, especially baptismal regeneration. Other new splinter groups, such as the International Churches of Christ, which is a different denomination, and the so-called Boston Movement, which is more recent, continues to insist on baptismal regeneration. So do some Lutheran churches, by the way. We haven't really talked about that, but there are, there are some Lutheran churches today that hold a different kind of baptismal regeneration, but still this idea that you're not officially saved until the moment that you are baptized. 
So here's a, an interesting chart that I found. This is on a, one of the teachers, I think it was at a seminary for the Churches of Christ or Disciples of Christ. And he, he drew this up and then it got copied and, and put on some websites and was in a book. But this kind of shows the overall picture. So at the top, you have the, the yellow bar going across. And that's the official Church of Christ. And this takes place all throughout church history. You have the subtitle, The Church in the Wilderness. Early on, you have the blue and the red dropping down. The blue and the red. Red is Roman Catholic, and the blue is the Greek. They call it Greek Catholic, but Greek Orthodox. So these are the two branches that split at the Great Schism. And then from the red, you have the denominations of the 1800s that Stone and, and the Campbells were really moving out of. The Lutherans, the Episcopals or Anglicans, the Methodists, which came from them. The Congregational which the United Brethren and Presbyterians and Baptists are all sort of linked up there. And so the idea is all the denominations of the 1800s are coming out of the Catholic Church through the Reformation. But at the top, if you go all the way over on the yellow, you see the Restoration Movement there, 1793 to 1830. And then that's where you get the three denominations, Churches of Christ, Christian Churches, and Disciples of Christ. And then you have the arrows pointing up there. And I think what they're saying by the arrows is that people are coming out of these denominations into the Restoration Movement because it claims the heritage going all the way back to the disciples. And everything else is headed the wrong way because only the yellow one, according to this man, only the yellow one ends up where? Heaven. But the red and the blue at the bottom don't go anywhere. They, they stop at a certain point. Again, not saying that all... This is not a... Um, because there's no creed, because there's no doctrinal statement, it's not like you can say all three of these denominations have the same agreement. And even within them, there's still loose beliefs depending on each church. But this is what one professor taught on the churches of Christ. And this was the original view of the Stone-Campbell movement as far as being the true church throughout the ages. All right, then later in the 1800s, 1848, just real quickly, because this was how, an example of how the media can play up something. We've seen that in our lifetime, haven't we? 1848, strange knocks and noises began occurring in the bedroom of six-year-old Kate and eight-year-old Margaret Fox in Hydesville, New York. Overnight, the media heard of this and went crazy with it. They became a sensation attracted numerous believers who eventually organized themselves into a spiritualist church. So some girls claimed to have some noises in the room. A whole church is formed out of it. Spiritualist mediums purport to communicate with the dead. Eventually the girls confess to a childish prank. So there's all three sisters there, but, but the, the lower two, I think, are the ones who heard the knocks and noises. And uh, later they said it was a prank. But, you know, the whole heretical movement started as a result of that. Seventh-day Adventists also began at this time. All, still, We're all still on the Second Great Awakening period. There's all these revivals. A lot of things are going on. And you can look and say, that's great. But at the same time, you don't even know what all is happening out there. And it's much like today. It's, it's the Wild West of Christianity. A farmer named William Miller had studied his Bible for some time. And particularly Daniel and Revelation. And he came up with his own views of what Daniel was teaching and what Revelation was teaching. He concluded that Christ would return to the earth and 2,300 years after Ezra's return to Jerusalem, which is 457. 
And so he said, thus in 1843, that's going to be the year of Christ's return. Anytime people start predicting the year of Christ's return, you need to move away from that person as a teacher. Because Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour. But the, the mistake, the first mistake he made was thinking that he could just jettison all of church history, like many of these groups were talking about, and come up with his own views. And so in 1843, he said, Christ is going to return. People that, that followed him started selling their possessions, and they waited. And he had a prophetess, a prophetess who helped the movement go. That was Ellen G. White. And Ellen G. White supposedly heard from God and prophesied and wrote those out and distributed them amongst the people. And so everybody's ready for 1843. Christ doesn't come back. Then what? Well, they recalculated it. Because that's what you do. That's, who was the guy? The Reformed Church guy? What was it called? Reformed Family Association? On the radio a few years ago? Harold Camping. Right, what happened when it, the, the, he, he was saying the rapture was going to happen at a certain date? It didn't happen. Then what? He just moved it back a year. That didn't happen. And then he moved it back one more time. But then he died before that date even came. The first one, though, people were selling their homes and selling their, you know, living in an RV and, and giving all their money to the organization so they could put billboards up that Christ was coming back on a certain date. Well, you just move the date. Whenever a false teacher predicts a date, it doesn't come. You just move it back and move it back. So they said, okay, it'll be 1844. When that didn't happen, they said, well, actually it did happen. It just happened in heaven that Christ came back. And so we can't, we can't see it. That's how you solve that. Because if something doesn't happen enough, you're eventually going to think the person's a false teacher. So what they actually say is that Christ came back, but he just entered the heavenly sanctuary, and that was his return. And we'll talk more about the, what he did in the heavenly sanctuary when he did return. So there's the farmer, who was this? William Miller. And early on, they were called the Millerites. Now, sometimes people today will say, well, you know, y'all believe in the rapture or the millennial kingdom. That's Millerite. That's a Millerite. No, there was already views of the rapture in the millennial kingdom before that. His issue was predicting a date. And then getting his whole movement to, to sell everything to get ready for that. And getting a false prophetess, a false prophet here, to be the, the writer. So this is Ellen G. White. And she's supposed to, I think, be looking up, hearing from God and, and writing. And there's a colorized photo of her as well. She was really the, the mainstay of the movement. Probably people got more passionate about her teachings than the original guy who was just studying his Bible and picked bad dates. Shouldn't pick a date. Don't pick a date, all right? Seventh-day Adventist beliefs. What do they believe? I mean, they're just another denomination, right? I wouldn't call them a denomination. I think they're more along the lines of, of the cult group. They believe in soul sleep. Soul sleep is when you die, believers or unbelievers, doesn't matter, your soul goes into this sleep state. You don't, your soul doesn't go to be with Christ, doesn't go to heaven. And then when Christ returns, there'll be a resurrection but the unbelievers will be annihilated. They will not suffer eternity. They believe in annihilationism. These are one of the, well, I should say early. Origin believes in a type of annihilationism. But this was put out of the church for many millennia, many hundreds of years. Then the Seventh-day Adventists bring it back. And they say, look, the believers will, will go to heaven at that point because they're resurrected with a new body. The unbelievers get a new body. And then eventually that's wiped out. So there's no more people in hell. And originally, it just says there's no hell at all. I mean, think about it. If everybody gets annihilated, it's going to hell. There's no need for hell. Uh, they understood the gospel required a worship on the seventh day. The seventh day is what? Saturday. 
So they said we should be worshiping on the Sabbath like the Jews did. In fact, they also, not every single one, but they say that it's really good and really godly. And you, you can please the Lord if you have all these dietary laws, including not eating meat. And as I'm thinking of how he read Daniel a lot and got a lot of his theology from that, what happens at the beginning of Daniel? The Daniel diet, right? Who's, who's, who's been on the Daniel diet? Some of us don't want to admit that, right? That, that's real popular in seeker-friendly churches today. Go on the Daniel diet at the beginning of the year. But you just eat vegetables. and I mean, it sounds godly. The problem is, if you're going to diet or even fast, you do that for the Lord. You don't, you don't pronounce it to the whole church. Do it all together. You can fast and pray. A church can fast and pray. But the Daniel diet, Daniel didn't do that to be blessed for the year. Of course, he was going to be blessed. He was eventually one of God's prophets. But he did that because he was showing that they didn't need the king's meat. They didn't need all the king's fancy food. God would take care of them. Just like in the fiery furnace, the friends had the Lord take care of them. So anyway, many times you will hear Seventh-day Adventists talking about being vegetarian. Now back to Christ returning. So he returns in 1844, but it's in heaven, not on earth. And they said this is his second work of atonement. So that should draw your attention there. This is why I think we're getting more into the cult area. Christ came back because... The atonement wasn't finished. He needed to do it again. And so that's why he came back into the heavenly sanctuary. And in addition to that, since 1844, there has been an investigative judgment or heavenly sanctuary continuing, meaning that he is already judging believers and watching closely their works. And you have to do certain things. And it's good to follow these dietary laws. And you must worship on Saturday because he's investigating you right now and is judging you as a believer. The Bible says there's a judgment to come in the future and it's not happening right now. So their whole view of the atonement and, and the gospel is way off. And again, this comes from the revivalism period where they reject the beliefs of the confessions and church history. And a farmer who's reading his Bible just starts a new movement. And you think this doesn't happen today, but it does. You hear a lot of People will just start it. They'll just start a church. No training. No church sent them out. You don't all. Not every church planner has to go to seminary. But there's no background. There's no training. There's no training in theology. There's no training in the biblical languages. And a guy just starts a church. He has a little bit of a southern accent and talks about things that make people laugh. And you know the the thing just booms up and takes off. Often people wonder later though where these beliefs come from and why is it why is that church going so charismatic, or, or why are they following Bethel, or, or why are they moving so much towards Hillsong and that movement? Well, because it started with the wrong doctrinal foundation. It's not that popular. There have been different Bible scholars in the last hundred years or so that hold to it because they think it's more compassionate, that God would just destroy people completely and not make them suffer eternally. Usually it's, it's a person struggling with the eternal punishment in hell doctrine that's taught in the Bible. And so that's often, but there, there, are, there are people that I've ran into who hear this view and they think, oh, that sounds great and hold to it. It's usually individuals. I don't, I don't know of any conservative church or movement that would teach that today. Yeah. But it, there are individuals and typically they find somebody's sermon on the Internet out there somewhere and sounds good. That's what they think. Christian science. This was not a frontier sect like a lot of these other movements we've talked about. 
This was happening in the city. This was an urban movement. It was founded by Mary Baker, who would later take the last name Glover and then get divorced and take Patterson. And then Mary Baker Eddy was her final husband. She died in 1910. She becomes depressed and physically sick in the 1800s. She meets a man who is a healer, P.P. Quimby, in 1862. And he said that you can be healed by mental assent to the truth. And that truth is that illness and our physical matter isn't a reality. It's just something that is made up in your mind. you got to get over that. And so Mary Baker Eddy says, hey, that's a great way. I was healed by this. I'm going to set up a practice and impart this knowledge in a series of lessons. So today, Christian scientists, often you, you hear about them because they won't get any medical care. And sometimes themselves or their children will die as a result of not getting medical care for some genetic ailment that's going to kill the child or emergency situation. Supposedly, she got medical care, though, and paid for her sister to have a various medical care. But her practice was getting people in to be healed by changing their thinking on this subject. So there's Mary Baker Eddy, or she wasn't Eddy as a young person, and then here she is later. 1875, she publishes her work, Science and Health on equal authority with the Bible, she says. See, this is where you're getting into the cult status because she publishes a work that really goes against Scripture and she says it's equal to Scripture. She forms the association the next year, 1876, Christian Scientists Association, and then she eventually will form up the church with other people. They call themselves the Church of Christ and then scientists to differentiate between other Church of Christ. Given a state charter in 1879, the First Church of Christ Scientist of Boston becomes the mother church for the movement. And it's still a big movement, or larger than around here, up in the, the Northeast New England area. Here's what they believe. The denial of the reality of matter, that's everything that exists outside of the spiritual. The denial of evil, there is no evil. And you hear this in the world today. A lot of people, you know, very philosophical folks will say, you know, evil is just a concept. It's just in your mind. It's actually not a real thing. And sometimes people say that's what Christians believe because we believe in God and, and we don't think that, that evil is all that powerful. And the world will say, oh, you're just denying the reality of evil. Also sickness. Because matter is not real and evil is not real, then how can you have sickness? These are just a delusion of your senses. So what you really need is to go in to see one of these Christian scientists and fix your thinking so that you will be healed of these delusional things that you have. That's what they believe. One has just to realize one's identity with God or good, doesn't even have to be God, just the good, to be freed from both evil and sickness. Emphasis upon healing made the movement appealing to sick people. This was in the 1800s. It wasn't the kind of care that we have today. So there's great emphasis on healing. People are glad to go get their ailments healed. And later, some people would call this the cult of American women. Because it was the first movement started by a woman. And the women were very prominent in the Christian science early stages. Anybody run into Christian scientists? Yeah? In Texas? Right now? Yeah. They have a reading room. They call them reading rooms. Christian science reading rooms. There are many people calling themselves Christian churches these days that are laying on graves and saying they can raise the dead. We got lots of evangelism to do. Scientologists next door, Christian scientists next door. Yeah, 
the Christians, well, not Christians, Scientologists come much later in the 1900s. But what I wanted to show you here is the, these groups, what they have in common is that they all want to jettison previous doctrine and church history and, and theology that has been studied and thought about and written down and carefully written out in these creeds and confessions and go back to what they thought was the apostolic teaching. But as we've seen, whether it's the more, the more conservative churches of Christ or the really strange Christian science beliefs, those didn't always work out. Because when you throw out the interpretation that has come about throughout church history, then you're left to do what? Form your own interpretation. Which, if you're really studied on hermeneutics and exegesis in the original language, you might get close to the target. But why not also look at what all these other folks have done for 2,000 years and see, do they have some good ideas? When I, when I preach, when I preach a, a passage on Romans, I'm looking at 15 commentaries, 20 commentaries. Not because I don't know Greek, not because I don't know how to study the passage, but I want to see what they said. I want to see where they're wrong. I want to see where they're right. That sharpens me. That also helps me know that I'm within the boundaries, right? I don't want to say something way out there. Paul says it's a judgment according to works, and you'll be justified according to works. Well, you can imagine how people can go wild with that kind of thing in the Bible. But Paul's in a context of all of Romans and all of the letters, and so we need to take that context, and then we also need to look historically at the theological work that has been done on such things. I think they're just called reading rooms. Well, there is this one in, in Boston, probably, but where there's less of them, it's not a, a very large movement. I think a few thousand. They have reading rooms, which I used to think when I saw those that you're going in to read books, but I think they're reading you is the idea there. I don't know. Maybe somebody's been in the reading rooms. She can raise it in. But I thought matter wasn't real. I mean, how can, how can you even have death if matter's not real, right? It's all a delusion. I'll have to add that to my slides. All right, last one, I think, for this section. Jehovah's Witnesses, also called the Watchtower Society. Later, they'll, they'll become Jehovah's Witnesses. They did not start out like this. In 1879, this man, Charles Taze Russell, began publishing a magazine called Zion's Watchtower and the herald of Christ's kingdom. So he, he's coming out of what's called the Bible student movement in the late 1800s. This is the, more of the third. The, the previous ones were more of the you know, second great awakening. Christian science and Jehovah's Witnesses is coming out of the third great awakening. And there's a, a real desire to get back to the Bible. Let's study the Bible. Not jettison church history, but study the Bible. Make sure we're on track. Make sure we're not just building on tradition that has occurred in each denomination but checking that. And so he comes out of that, but he says, you know, I've got some new ideas. I'm going to publish a new magazine for people to read. So it's called The Watchtower and Herald of Christ's Kingdom. So in 1881, he starts a society based on that. And he was a very prolific writer. He authored numerous books, articles, tracts. And he is again coming out of what we've already looked at, the Restorationist movement. So early on, he's with the, the beliefs of Stone and the Campbellites. And saying that the, the church has lost its way and the true church has been in the wilderness. We need to bring it back. We're going to bring it back through all these writings and publications. And so he believed that creeds of the church, along with the Restorationists, they were full of error. And the church needs to be restored to its true primitive teachings. So there he is. Got his book and his studies. And uh, there's his monument over his tomb today. Strange looking pyramid there. He taught that there would be 
heavenly resurrection of only 144,000. Because he said in Revelation, 144,000 is mentioned. He interprets that as all the saints that will be resurrected. Everyone else is going to be resurrected after soul sleep, but that's just to live on the earth. So to be in heaven, you have to be part of the 144,000. And part of the issue with Jehovah's Witnesses is, you know, there's only so many people who get in out of the 144,000. How do you know if you are one? And you, there's this idea of constantly working to be good enough. They taught that Jesus received his divinity, or, or Russell did, and today they teach this. He received his divinity after his resurrection. So he's not the Son of God until he lives a perfect life and he dies on the cross. Then it's shown that he can earn that godlike state. So he's given that after his resurrection. So they deny the deity of Christ. This is the Arian heresy of the early church brought back to the modern times. They taught that the Holy Spirit's not a person, but a force. So again, a denial of the Trinity, just a force or a manifestation of God's power. And uh, Russell taught that Christ had returned in 1874, but it was invisible too, similar to what Miller said. And he saw World War I as the outbreak of Armageddon. So he is pred predicting dates. And when those don't happen, just invisible. You didn't notice it. After he died, the Bible student movement, which is what they became called, was split. Most of those previously associated with Russell left. They'd had enough. Those who remained started a new group called the Jehovah's Witnesses based on his beliefs. They officially adopt that name in 1931. Today, supposedly they have 18 million adherents. And they, they modernize. They look, you go to their website, which I don't really recommend, but Mormons too, they, they, they've got it these last decade. They, they know we need to look like the other churches out there. We need to look like the Protestants. We need to look like the seeker-friendly movement. And they have these displays. I saw one of these. I think it was outside of Walmart in Bernie a couple of years ago. And I thought, what does the Bible really teach? I mean, that looks interesting. I start walking up thinking they're giving out tracts about the Bible. And the great, who's, who's evangelizing in front of Walmart? You got to pay, I think, to do that or something. And then I get closer and you see in the middle, jw.org, Jehovah's Witnesses. I thought, well, they're really stepping it up, not just going house to house, but setting up displays in front of big box stores. You get a little closer and read the fine print. Right in the middle there, it's, it's real small. And, and when they come to your house, they want to give you their teaching. And if you just flip through it, it's nothing. They don't put any of their denial of the deity of Christ. They don't, they don't put those things in there because they know that's not going to be palatable to most people that call themselves Christian. All right, let's move in with the modern missionary movement. I don't want to leave us just thinking about heretics and, and cults and restoration movements. But let's go back now and look at how the modern missionary movement started. It started in the late 1700s and the early 1800s. And this photo is of a drawing here, an engraving, that shows the elders sending out Adoniram Judson and his team that went to Burma. And you can see the laying on of hands and the sending out of missionaries. He was from the U.S. We'll look at him next week, probably. Let's look at the forerunners of the modern missionary movement. So after the, the Reformation, the Reformers did train up pastors who went back into their Catholic countries and they died for the faith. So I, I think that is a missionary movement. We need to get out of our heads that missionaries mean 
they have to at least go halfway around the, the globe before we can call them missionaries. I don't agree that every believer is the same sort of missionary as the apostles who went out and died for the faith. We are called to evangelize. We are called to be living a missionary type of life. But missionary is someone who's trained up, supported, and sent out to evangelize and plant churches. Yeah, that's just a rough overview there. I do think the reformers did that. Some will say, well, the reformers didn't do that. They were focused on internal issues and theology. But the problem is Calvin trains up 2,000 pastors to go back to France, and most of them die. They send two people to Brazil. They died for the faith. So there was a movement of missions. It was just more local. After that, there was still a big issue with reforming the theology and getting it written in the scholastic reform movement. But again, there's still some kind of idea that we need to take the gospel out to the lost. When the Puritans, especially those who came to America, met the natives, they understood they needed to take the gospel to the nations. And so they started evangelizing the Native American Indians at that time as well. One of the very first ones, John Eliot, he's known as the Indian Apostle because of his work among the Native Americans. And in 1663, he publishes a translation of the Bible into the Algonquin Indian language, the first Bible published on American soil. And he is not only preaching to them in their language, but he's learned it well enough to write it out using English script because they don't have written language. So he can take the English letters and just make the same sounds that they make and teach them how to read it. He established a number of towns where the Christianized natives could live and practice Christianity while maintaining other aspects of their culture. They were known as the Praying Indians. So there he is, an early Puritan, John Eliot was. He made this translation. So you can just, you know, sound it out. This would be good for our kids to learn how to pronounce syllables. We do that, by the way, when they're starting to guess at words and as they're reading. And, and you can tell they're just guessing at the way it's the, the word starts. We go to those lists in Ezra where it's all those Hebrew names. And we don't know those in English. So they have to sound out each syllable. Well, that's the way you would do this here. And sound out the syllables. And, and this was the way it sounded to the Algonquin people. So there's a whole Bible here on the right. The next one was Thomas Mayhew. And uh, these are forerunners of the modern missionary movement. These are missionaries who are on the edge of the frontier evangelizing and, and planting churches. The Mayhews were the first to colonize Martha's Vineyard. They maintained a very peaceful relation with the Indians there. And through the work of John Mayhew, Thomas's grandson, and Experience Mayhew, Thomas's great-grandson, they worked together to evangelize them. Many of them were saved. And due to this fair treatment of the natives and the evangelization, they did not experience any bloodshed during the Indian revolts of, of 75 and 76 called King Philip's War. We've already talked about David Brainerd, Thomas, I'm sorry, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards loved David Brainerd and he was one of the most famous of the early missionaries to the Native Americans. He worked at first among a group in Massachusetts and then among the Delaware Indians of Pennsylvania and New Jersey. He was very tireless. He basically wore himself out, and he died at the house of Jonathan Edwards trying to recover from one of those illnesses at 29 years old. After he dies, Edwards publishes his diary. It becomes a bestseller in colonial America, and it even caused Jonathan Edwards, when he was without a job because he got ran out of his church for teaching the truth, he goes to be a missionary after the, the vein of 
David Brainerd. After leaving his church there in Northampton, he began his missionary work among the Housatonic Indians of Stockbridge, Massachusetts for seven years. Through his own ministry to the Native American Indians and through his promotion of David Brainerd's life work, Edwards is considered by some historians to be the grandfather of modern missions. So we're going to talk about the father of modern missions, but some would say he's the grandfather of modern missions. I don't know if I'd go that far, but he certainly was early, him and, him and David Brainerd, an early pioneer and missionary movement. So let's now bring it up to the modern missionary movement. Where did all this start? Well, we're sending missionaries out and we're sending them to native peoples, unreached people groups, people where there's not a gospel presence, no churches present there. Where did all this start? Well, it started, of course, with the apostles, but it did die out with the Roman Catholic Church. They did some evangelism to the, to the pagan nations. It comes back around with the reformers, but all the wars and issues that happened during the Reformation can prevent some of that. And so as a result, it had died out, I think mainly because of the hyper-Calvinistic movement in England and, and the Unitarian liberal movements that happened in America had caused a lot of issues. The Unitarian already described where they deny the Trinity and there's no desire to take the gospel out. They just denied the gospel by denying the Trinity. The hyper-Calvinists in England, especially amongst the Reformed Baptists, had said basically there's no need to take the gospel to the nations. If God wanted to save them, he'll save them or he'll make them show up at our door and they'll walk in and hear the gospel. Well, this is a problem and men start getting the movement in their heart to take the gospel out. And so We'll stop there, but I want to tell you where we're going with three men that started this movement. First of all, William Carey. He's the father of modern missions. Adoniram Judson and Hudson Taylor. They start what we know today as the missionary movement. This is the great century of missions. This is where people would go on the mission field, and the only time they're coming back is to raise support. And they keep going back even though their kids die, their wife dies, which wasn't uncommon at all, even in cultured societies. But in the native areas, it was worse with disease. So this starts the great effort in the 19th century, a new global phase of missions. So we'll come back next week. We'll cover William Carey, Adoniram Judson, Hudson Taylor, some of my favorites really in church history. I did a paper and read a couple of books on Hudson Taylor. In seminary. I love that. Then we'll get into what happened with liberalism in America and the whole fight for the truth of Scripture. There's a huge fight that occurs in the late 1800s, early 1900s over liberalism coming from Europe into America and affecting the churches, affecting the seminaries. You're seeing the groundwork that's laid for what's out there today. We looked at the, the revivals and the altar calls and the pressure we looked at the numbers issue, just get a lot of people in, that justifies our movement. We looked at the cults and the different restoration movements. And now we're going to look at modern missions. And I think in the next two weeks, you'll see a lot of what shaped American Christianity. And then we have to, sadly, we have to end at the end of May, the last Sunday in May. No, no more church history for this class. New classes will start this summer. But see your bulletin for that. We will have equipping classes. There's always equipping classes, Lord willing, happening. But we do have to put a deadline on church history and uh, Frank's New Testament survey. We switch out in the summer and then we'll start new ones again in the fall. So let me close with prayer. Father, uh, we are grateful that we can learn, that you've given us a mind. We can evaluate what's happened with these movements in history. We're thankful for the modern missionary movement that we now are supporting 
missionaries who are going to other places where the gospel is in the minority, the true church is in the minority, and, and we're supporting them and we're praying for them and we're helping them. I pray that we would look back to the great men of the faith, learn from them, and have the same burning desire in our heart for Christ and the gospel. I pray that you would make this happen because your name is great. Amen.